Please turn with me in God's holy word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We began a study on this chapter a couple Sundays ago and give our attention to verses 4 and 5 this morning. As we mentioned before, 1 Corinthians 13 is not a standalone chapter, though we like to read it in various contexts. It's been read many times at weddings. It has much to say to the Christian marriage. It was not written, first of all, for that, but it was written to a church facing divisions, factions, conflict, and the Apostle Paul is calling them away from their selfishness to love. First Corinthians 13, we give our attention to God's word. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. If you look back to verses 4 and 5, the first part of verse 4 we already gave attention to last time, and then today we focus on 4b and following, love does not envy, Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Verse 5, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Shall we bow before our God and ask him to bless his word to us? Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we seek to look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed to be our mediator and savior, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray, God, that you would guide us in your truth today. 
And that Jesus Christ, who is the manifestation of your love, would so work in our hearts, uniting us to himself by his spirit, that we, even through the preaching of your word, might be made more like him. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Congregation of Christ, this, as I mentioned, is the third time we've looked now at 1 Corinthians 13. We gave attention in the first sermon a couple weeks ago to the first verses of the chapter where the apostle makes what is really an astounding proclamation, one that would have shocked the socks off the Corinthians, to hear that you could speak in tongues. Remember that was in those days, a, a peculiar spiritual gift that God gave to people to speak in foreign languages, foreign tongues. You could speak even in the language of angels, he says. But having not love, nothing more than some clanging metal. Or he says, if you had the gift of prophesying, which again was a gift limited to the apostolic era before we had the, the completion of the Bible, and God gave the spirit of prophecy to some, and he, he says you could have the prophecy gift to the nth degree. You could, you could know all wisdom, all knowledge, all mysteries, but have not love. You'd be nothing. And then he says you could give all you had to the poor. Suppose if you did that and, and would even surrender your body to the flames, but had not love, through all of that you would gain nothing. What a striking reality. And then last week we began to look at this description of love. Beginning in verse 4, we noticed that love suffers long and is kind. These two sides of a coin that, on the one hand, love bears with people. Bears their presence, their weaknesses, even wrongs they may do you. It suffers it. And then on the other side, love doesn't just suffer it, but love shows kindness Love goes out of its way to do good. It's thoughtful and caring to those around us. And now what follows in 1 Corinthians 13 is a whole list of negatives. Some eight negatives. We want to look at the first eight negatives, or excuse me, the first seven negatives this morning. And as you hear all these knots, love does not envy, not parade itself, not puffed up. Maybe you'd think, well, boy, the Apostle Paul sounds overly pessimistic here, a bit negative. And yet... It's interesting that the majority of all these words he uses are words he's already used in the letter of 1 Corinthians to describe the Corinthians. He's not pulling these ideas out of thin air here. They're not randomly gathered. These are the things the Corinthians are actually doing. This is a divided congregation. The Corinthian congregation had, had a multitude of issues. And the apostle is saying in a way, you want to know what love is? Well, do what you're not doing. That's what love is. Behave like you're not behaving. Love is the opposite of this sinful, self-centered life. And yet, it's not just the Corinthians who need negatives, right? We, we look at the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Lots of them are written in the negative form. You shall not, right? Because we, by nature, go the wrong way. This morning... The Lord gives to us negatives, lest we flatter ourselves. If he only gave us positives, we might say, well, yeah, I do that. I think I do that. But when we hear these negatives, it's, well, it's humbling, isn't it? It's humiliating. When we find reflections of these things 
in our own hearts, if not in our own behavior. And we should be humbled this morning. It's a good thing to be humbled before God's word. It's not maybe a fun thing to have the light of God's word shining upon us and and testing us. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing because the Lord exposes our sin that we might flee all the more to Christ. But it's also a good thing because as God tells us what love is not, he is saying to us that he's not going to leave us in the depravity into which we had plunged ourselves. But he's making us new in Christ Jesus. And if you want to know what love is, the defining act of love is God giving his own beloved son, Jesus Christ dying for sinners. And it's as we're united to Jesus Christ that we, that we have Christ, the Lord of love, living in us and reshaping us to be a loving community. So let's look at, at this at this description of love here in verses 4b and verse 5, there's, I said, seven negatives we want to look at this morning, and I think we could categorize them under three headings. First of all, let's notice that love does not promote itself. Love does not promote self. And then secondly, love does not push others out of the way. And then thirdly, love does not pamper one's injured ego. Okay, so number one, love does not promote me. Number two, love does not push away or push down or push past others. And number three, love does not pamper my injured ego. Let's look at the first three negatives under that first heading, that love does not promote self. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Now, we've heard maybe of puppy love, and we doubt the reality of that, but have you ever heard of puffy love? Paul says there's no such thing. If it's puffy, it's not love. 1 Corinthians 13 here, as I mentioned, stands in between chapters 12 and 14, where the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. He's come now to this issue of spiritual gifts in the life of the Corinthian church. And in chapter 12, he, he had described the body of Christ In terms of its similarity to a human body, a human body has many different parts, but they are all united for one common good, and that's the nature of the church of Christ. It has many parts. In fact, he says that that God has so arranged the church, and the Spirit has, has so gifted in a variety of ways the members that they serve the common good. And just now, as in your human body, you wouldn't be content if you were a body with half your parts. You, you'd prefer to have all your parts. So it wouldn't work in the church of Christ to say, well, we only need these certain gifts. Corinthians had really come to emphasize prophesying, and apparently above all spiritual gifts was the gift of tongue speaking. And Paul, you see, has says in 1 Corinthians 12 that that the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. And yet in Corinth, there's some who are saying, yeah, we're the premier, the spiritually gifted, the elite. We don't really need the rest of you. As absurd it would, as it would be to say that about our human body, that I'm glad to give up my feet or my hands, how absurd to say this in the church of Jesus Christ. The apostle warns against this then. That love does not envy. Envy, apparently, had a free pass in the Corinthian congregation. Everyone was clamoring for the great gifts and envying those who had them. 
The little green-eyed monster was everywhere to be found. There were some who, who envied the Apostle Paul. They were his rivals. They wanted the affection of the congregation for themselves. And there were members among the congregation that were envying each other and the gifts that God had given them. Envy is an ugly thing, isn't it? But it's a sneaky thing. Sneaks in. I remember in my first year of seminary, we were only a couple months into seminary, I think, and, and there was early meetings that would lead to the formation of the United Reformed Churches denomination. And us seminarians were attending these meetings because they were close to the seminary in Indiana. And one of our fellow first-year seminarians, in attending the meeting, somehow they had this portable mic or this cordless mic that would be passed around, and somehow he started passing the mic to the delegates who wanted to speak, and it sort of became his role at these meetings. And, and one of my fellow students said at one point, maybe jokingly, but somewhat seriously as well, he said, look at him, he's getting all the attention. All the churches are going to know his name. He's, you know, he's going to get a call to the ministry. I remember thinking to myself, oh boy, this doesn't bode well for us, does it? And the first months of seminary, if we're worried about the opportunity someone else has, Envy. Am I jealous of someone else? Am I grieved that someone else has spiritual gifts that that I don't have? Am I frustrated that that she gets all the attention? Do I find that greed-eyed monster raging in my heart that somebody else has more money, their business is more successful, they take nicer vacations, or or their wife treats them nicer, their their husband buys her nicer gifts than my husband, or or they have children that I wish were mine, or, or they don't have any children, they're free to go all these places. You see, jealousy and envy creeps in. Spoils relationships, right? Maybe there's someone we can't bear to say anything nice about, or maybe it's even somebody famous. We don't even know the person. But some famous minister who we love saying something evil about. The antidote to all of this, Christ tells us, is love. Love teaches us that our relationships are not about rivalry or competition in the body of Christ. In fact, Paul had warned back in 1 Corinthians 3, for you are still carnal or fleshly, he says. For, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not fleshly? There were these party divisions in the Corinthian congregation. And they were all competing against each other. The Corinthians lived in a culture that was saturated with status-seeking. Status-seeking. We know something similar today. And in the world, unbelievers begrudge other people their giftedness, their honor, their opportunities. But in the body of Christ, we are to rejoice in the gifts God's given to a brother or sister, to the opportunities God has given to that brother or sister, to the honor God has bestowed upon that brother or sister. Love does that. It praises the Lord Jesus Christ, that he, the Lord of his church, distributes by his spirit as he pleases for the good of the body. And we say, whatever you give me, Lord, let me not worry how I look, but may I use whatever you've given me for the well-being of the congregation. Love does not envy. But the second negative under this first heading, love does not parade itself either. Love doesn't strut about like a peacock. 
hoping to show off. Love doesn't boast. Boasting can also be subtle. Social media has invented many new ways of boasting. It's easy, isn't it, to fall into it? I remember at a church meeting with several reform ministers. One time we were engaging in some work, and in the midst of it, I don't remember what the frustration was, but one of the, one of the ministers said, well, I started a church plant with 40 people, and it grew to 300, so clearly I know something about church planting. I remember the room just kind of went silent. Such an odd thing. For Reformed ministers who profess that the work of the church, salvation is God's work. To hear a minister speak that way was humiliating to everyone. But upon reflection, we've all done it, haven't we? Find ways of strutting our stuff, drawing the attention to ourselves. Love doesn't do that, Christ says. Love is humble, it's self-effacing. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you differ? Who makes you different from one another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Love remembers that all that I have is a gift of grace. I deserve none of it. Whatever spiritual gifts have not come from me, but from God's spirit, whatever opportunities are not of my making, but of Christ's, undeserved, So love does not envy, love does not parade itself, and thirdly here, love is not puffed up. Love is not puffed up. The apostles used that word several times already in the letter to describe the Corinthians. They're a puffy people. He says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, we know that that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So puffiness and love are opposites. Cherishing an inflated idea of our own importance is not love. Obsessing about status or attention is not love. Behaving in an attention-getting way is not love. We think too highly of ourselves. What did John Calvin say, echoing, I think, Augustine? He said, there's three rules to the Christian life. Number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. But puffiness, that has no place in the body. Unless we puff out our chests, trying to make room for ourselves in our own ways. More than once I've heard people say, well, I'm a, I'm a charter member. Whoa, a charter member. Not a member of Christ's church by grace, but a charter member. One time I heard a man very angry. He wasn't being recognized for what he was doing in the church. And when he described it to us, it was actually very, very little that he was doing. But he was upset that no one even knew what he was doing. Jesus arrived at Capernaum and asked the disciples, what were you disputing about on the way? And they were silent. Because they'd been disputing about which one of them would be the greatest. Later in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells them what he's going to suffer. He, the Lord of glory, 
He's going to be betrayed, falsely condemned, whipped, mocked, spit on, killed. And then two of his disciples say, hey, we want good spots when we get to heaven. We want to sit on thrones. And then the other disciples, when they found out, they were angry, not for Jesus' sake, apparently, but because they didn't think of asking themselves, I guess. And Jesus called them all to himself and said, you know, that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a glorious mystery, this gospel, that that he who deserves all attention, worshipped by angels, descends into the mess of our world, taking up our flesh to die in our place. He gives his life for us. And it's in that atmosphere that, that pride is suffocated, right? Isaac Watts had it right. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. In the presence of the crucified Christ, pride, puffiness, is broken. So the apostle says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You know the rest. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, all the way to the death on a cross. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. It's not an awesome thought that the mind of, of the Son of God, the mind of the Lord of glory who humbled himself to death could be my mind. That he would so dwell in me by his spirit that my mind would be conformed to his mind. This is a glorious thing. That we don't have to promote ourselves. But love drives a sword into pride and self-promotion. Love cancels the me parade Love kicks the green-eyed monster out. Love is to exercise the mind of Christ, not what can I get for me, but how can I serve the Lord and his people by his grace. But secondly, this morning, we have to notice that where self-promotion reigns, then something else will necessarily follow, and it will be that will push other people down or out of the way. And so let's look at that, that love does not push others out of the way. And now I'd like to look at those first two items in verse 5. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. To behave rudely is to diminish the significance of other people. If you think of yourself in an inflated way, then you necessarily have to deflate other people around you. But, But love doesn't want to do that doesn't want to misuse people, disrespect people, take advantage of people, or ride roughshod over them. The word translated rudely here suggests what is ill-mannered or contrary to good order, not courteous. One paraphrase version of the Bible says, love has good manners. Love has good manners. 
might sound funny to us. Maybe a, a, bit, a bit Victorian, right? We don't hear too much about manners books anymore. Do I need to memorize Miss Manners' Guide to Excruciatingly Correct Behavior? We don't spend so much time on manners anymore, do we? What's the Holy Spirit telling us here? He's telling us that love counts others as important, as significant. And therefore behaves towards others in ways that are polite and respectful and courteous and caring and well-mannered. Someone has said that the Christians are not slaves of social etiquette, but they ought to be enamored with biblical etiquette. The Bible has a lot to say about how we treat other people, how we treat the elderly, how we speak. It doesn't take a great observation of our culture to see that we become rather casual and rather crass and, quite frankly, rather ill-mannered. In fact, manners are mocked. Now, sometimes the social norms of a culture are not biblical, and so we ought to reject them. But one commentator wisely notes, quote, Jesus did not make a virtue out of nonconformity. And another one writes, Christians who excuse themselves from the rules of propriety and social conventions, the polite behavior customary in their own world, because of their freedom in Christ or their knowledge, well, they're acting in error. You know, the cultures develop ways, or they should, right, of, of curbing selfishness by behaving in certain patterns. Some of that can be quite helpful, right? What was happening in Corinth? Well, you read on in chapter 14, and, and you, you read about the, the charismatic chaos going on. 1 Corinthians 14 at verse 26. How is it, brethren, whoever, excuse me, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three each in turn and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. You get the impression that in Corinth, they were all clamoring to get up front and to say their peace, to speak in tongues, or to offer their prophesying. They were cutting one another off, behaving rudely. And the apostle says, that has nothing to do with the God of peace and the God of order and the God of love. Not chaos and worship. We have a little different worship now, don't we? Because as I said, we believed gifts of revelation, tongue speak and prophesying have, have ceased. We don't need them. We have the word now. But there's still ways to behave rudely among the people of God. Monopolizing the congregation's time or elbowing our way in to conversations or to places we want to serve. Love, the apostle says, is not disruptive doesn't push others out of my way. 
Love is to reign in the council room, in the consistory room, as office bearers work together. Love is to reign as we serve on committees beside each other. Love is to reign when we have an idea what the church should be doing or what might be helpful in the church and how we go about promoting that idea. How does love apply to the way one preaches? I'm really finding these words most challenging, and in fact, commentators seem to say a lot about ministers, maybe because most of them are ministers, or maybe because it's an obvious place of pitfall for attention-getting. But how does it apply to preaching? How does it apply to, to conducting family visits? How does it apply to how we treat each other in the body of Christ? To, do we seek to control conversations, impose our will on others? How does it apply when someone tries to speak to us. Love is not rude. I've had it happen at least a couple times in the ministry that I've had to explain somebody's behavior in the congregation to someone else who's been put off by it. Trying to explain their personality To the one, somebody new oftentimes, who doesn't comprehend why they're looking at them that way or why they speak to them that way. We have different personalities and we all need to be explained, I suppose. But we should ask ourselves, am I trying to be polite? When I speak to people, do I try to smile? Do I... When they ask me questions, do I try to answer them and make conversation pleasant? Or do I give them nothing, make them ask every question until they give up and walk away? Do I give people a reason to walk away, think I'm angry at them? Do I impose my opinion and say what I think about everything as soon as I met somebody? Or do I listen? You see, these are are things related to loving each other in the body of Christ. Am I approachable? Love is not rude. Well, the root of being rude is found in that next one there, right? That love is not rude. Love does not seek its own. You see, we push people and we possess people and we maneuver them for our own good if we believe that it's all about me. One writer notes, quote, Love never seeks to possess the other for its own self-gratification. He notes how it is in romantic relationships. People say they love each other, and then they say, I I want you. What does that mean? He suggests that I want you may well tend towards lust rather than love. Lust takes, love gives. And if we look at each other in the church as so many people to be known and relate to so that they're in places that feed our egos, then we've missed the point. Think about this with regards to spouses, right? Is my, my spouse someone I love or someone I use? We could think of it in parents and children. There are many people in this world who look at their children as, as things that bring them pleasure. Because in the little child, they have unconditional love that gratifies the heart. Or, or they can live vicariously through their son's sports achievements. In all kinds of relationships, marriage and family, but also in the church 
We ought to remember people are not objects to serve us, but they're persons made in the image of God. In the body of Christ, they're blood-bought people, renewed in the image of God. And the Corinthians had forgotten all of this and run over each other in their worship services, talking on top of each other. And then back in chapter 11, if you want to look that one up, 11 verses 21 and 22, or actually chapter 11 verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's not what you're eating. It's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Verse 21 For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Corinthians had apparently kind of a love feast or some greater meal and their Lord's Supper celebrations and the rich were going ahead and having the fine wine and the delicacies and leaving the poor behind. Paul says, that's not the Lord's Supper. I don't know what that is, but it's not the Lord's Supper. And then earlier in chapter 10, Paul's going to say, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You can eat meat, meat sacrificed to idols. But he begins and ends the conversation by saying it's not just about that. It's about your brother. Verse 23 of chapter 10, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify or build up. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So he's urging them to have mercy on the weaker brother whose conscience is greatly grieved when we find out this meat was first taken to the temple and dedicated to an idol. Now Paul says, don't eat it for his sake, for his conscience. You see, according to the Apostle Paul, it's not about finding oneself. That's not what life is about. Life is about giving oneself. It's not about me. One writer, one commentator writes, this is good, I think. He writes agape, which is the word here for love, biblical love. Agape spells judgment on the life that centers around the ego and interests of self. For when God's agape is shed abroad in a man's heart through the Holy Spirit, his life thereby gains a new center. The emphasis is transferred from his own ego ego to Christ. Isn't that comforting? That when we are united to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit gives to our lives a new center. Our culture cries out, you've got to find yourself. You've got to express yourself. And Christ cries out, you need to give yourself away. You need to find Christ. And in Christ, give yourself away. Love is not rude. Love does not seek its own. It's not, first of all, about family life, but it certainly applies, right, to a little church in our home. And maybe it's actually easier to begin there in terms of finding conviction under this word of God, right? Because, because in the church, we sometimes do put on pretty good manners, but go home and close the door. and You might be surprised what comes out of our mouths. Love is not rude. Love does not seek its own. When I get home from work as a husband, is it all about me? How was my day and what I want? 
As a mother, do I try to control my children for my convenience sake, for my reputation? As children or young people, since my mom takes such sweet care of me, do I, do boys and girls, do we begin to think that it's all about us? We find it easy to complain, we don't get our way or don't get our favorite supper? Love is not rude. Love does not seek itself. When we talk in the home or in the workplace, we find it easy to interrupt the others and to talk on top of each other. Love is not ill-mannered. In Philippians 2, the apostle writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Love is found in Jesus Christ, the Lord, the master, the teacher, who in the upper room sets aside his garments to put on a towel and to perform the most menial task, the servant's work of washing his disciples' feet. And then saying to them when he had finished, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. For the word of God this morning, we're humbled, aren't we? It brings us low to think of our selfishness, to ask, who's on the throne? Is it me or is it Christ Jesus? A Savior has stooped to wash my feet, and now will I stand in pride and refuse to wash others' feet? What's being, brothers and sisters, what's, what's being commended to us here is not a human virtue. It's not what's being commended. What's being commended to us here in the text is the divine gift, the gift of love. The world cannot know this kind of love because it has not the Spirit of Christ. This is... God's love poured out in our hearts through Christ. So love does not promote itself. Love does not push others out of the way or push past them. Finally, let's notice this morning that love does not pamper the injured ego. And now we look at those last two in verse 5, that love is not provoked and love thinks no evil. Love is not provoked. It's not easily irritated. It's not quickly angered. It's not super touchy. It doesn't become exasperated at what others do to me because I've been denied my place. And then he says that love thinks no evil, and the word he uses is the idea of a word of, of reckoning or adding up. And so I think it's the NIV that says love uh, keeps no record of wrongs. That's what he's talking about here. One of the Books on family have the author, a pastor counselor, tells about um, marriage counseling. A couple comes in, and, and this couple was meeting with him, and he, as he inquired what the issue was, the wife drops on his desk a thick notebook. He opens it up, and she has meticulously detailed for the past several years everything her husband has done wrong. <laughs> 
a record of his wrongs. Well, love doesn't have what one writer calls a private file of personal grievances that can be consulted and nursed. Or someone else, the supposed wrongs of the other person or group of people are counted, noted, brooded upon, and resentfully added into a grand total of supposed hurt. You see what God the Holy Spirit's doing now? He's saying, you know what? Those who fail to love because of their selfishness are not just the ones who parade themselves and puff themselves, and it's not just the ones who therefore act rudely and seek their own, but there's a way to act just as selfishly if you're in a weaker position and you're the one being wronged, and you're the one being wronged. Self-centeredness, you see, can lead to parading our gifts, but self-centeredness can also lead to parading our hurts. Neither group is putting the other first. In Corinth, there were both, right? There were the strong. There were the rich. There were the ones who spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there were those who, who had no place in the church. And those who had little money. And those who were being pushed aside. But the Spirit is saying, oh, don't think because you're poor that you've got this love thing down. Look at you over there nursing your grudges. Talking about that evil group over there. You see, nursing the grudge is also a form of ego. And when that's done, then in the body of Christ, what could become, begin to happen is that we engage in a kind of manipulation or emotional blackmail. That now those who are in the weaker position, those who are the injured or the hurt now, begin with passive-aggressive behavior to exercise a resistance movement. We won't play along. Christ says both of you are wrong. Christ opens up a new way, the way of love, where little wrongs are quickly forgotten and big wrongs are dealt with in a biblical way. Matthew 18, go to your brother, show him his offense, seek to be reconciled. Because our God is the God who forgave us and wiped out the handwriting of requirements. The record against us was nailed to the cross, Colossians tells us. In 1 Corinthians 5, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Our great need is to know God's love and forgiveness in Christ Jesus, isn't it? Sometimes we entertain suspicions about our God, and we actually begin to think that he resents us. He's written this Bible, he has this gospel, so he has to let us into his church because he's the God of forgiveness, but secretly in his heart, he resents me because I did such and such, because I haven't measured up to what he wants, never been one of his favorite children. It's those suspicions that lead us in the path of self-centeredness. To love others, to endure the wrongs, to bear patiently, comes from the heart that knows God has so loved us that he sent his son 
That while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You see, the nature of God's love is not to embrace us when we get cleaned off, but to embrace us in our mess and make us his own forever. Ephesians 4 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't keep a record of wrongs. To pull it out in the moment of conflict, to drop the notebook, to show all we've done, to bear a grudge, his heart is a heart of forgiveness, a heart of love, a heart of mercy. He nailed all the handwriting against us to the cross, all the charges, and he sent his own son to bear the wrath upon us. An amazing thing the love of God is. And I've been thinking as we've been studying these verses now about the fact that we have many decorations around in our homes or church buildings that bear some part or some piece of 1 Corinthians 13 on them, right? We're attracted to these words about love, and they're beautiful words. We noted a couple weeks ago that even many unbelievers have read these words at ceremonies and so forth. But what I recognized this week as I thought about all the decorations with the word love on them is that they're also beautiful. The words about love are inscribed on beautiful embroideries or artwork, well-framed. But actually, if you look at love in the Bible, it's the opposite. The beauty of love is found in the context of what is black, messed up, dark, and dented. The glory of God's love is not that he came to a nice embroidered world, But he came to us in our filth and in our wretchedness and in our selfishness and in our egos. He came to us and his son, gave his life that we could have life. And the love to which God was calling the Corinthian church was not a love that they might exercise in the future when they start looking more beautiful. But Christ is saying right now where you Corinthians are and all of your factions and all of your divisions and all of your warring and all of your hurts, it's if you exercise the love of Christ, the mind of Christ now, there, then we see what love is. That's what love is. Love is not that which reacts to the beauty and attractiveness to another. God's love is self-originating. He loves us for his sake, not because he was compelled to love us or attracted to love us. We were ugly. And it's wrong of us to think that we just need to love those who love us. Jesus said even the pagans do that. Christian love is to love even your enemies. And so, I don't think we need a bunch of new plaques on the wall that are ugly, blackened, dented. Looking messy to write love over, those probably won't be appealing decorations. Love is beautiful, and love makes things beautiful. The next time you see one of those decorations, you might remind yourself that the glory of Christ's love to me and the glory of Christ's love through me is not found 
than a beautifully framed embroidery. It's found when I love that which is not very lovely at all, that which does not compel me or naturally interest me. It's when I love the one who is difficult to love. Then I've loved by the love in which God has loved me in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by your love and we are humbled by your word. Father, we grieve to see so many of these things that love us not yet being reflected in our own hearts and lives. We acknowledge before you, Lord, that we have envied and boasted and paraded ourselves. We have sought our own way, and we have kept record of wrongs, and we have nursed our hurts. And we pray you'll forgive us in Christ, because you are the God of love. And we pray that your love would be shed abroad in our hearts by your Spirit, and that we'd love not after the pattern of the world, but after the pattern of your love for us, in the cross of Christ. In the name of this glorious, living Savior, we pray. Hear us, God, and help us. Amen.